So I have been letting you guys know uh, for the past couple of weeks that our plan is to dive into the book of Acts together. And uh, so, you know, I've been, I've been trying to hone my skills a little bit to, to get better for your sake at uh, speaking. And one of the things that I was trying to do is to just simplify things. And I was reading one of the great philosophers said that what you need to do when you're public speaking is tell them what you want to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Have you heard that stuff, right? That's right. My brother loves it when I keep things simple. Well, I tried. I, I probably failed. I tried. Here we go. Here's what I want to accomplish today. I'm telling you what I'm going to tell you. I want to provide us a really solid context of Acts. We want to look at who, what, when, and where of the book of Acts, and we want to be able to uh, take a look at what God's master plan is for establishing his kingdom here among men. And then finally, what I hope to do is to exhort all of us to actively participate in God's strategy. So that's the plan for the morning. That's what we're going to attempt to accomplish. Let's see if we can do that in about 30 minutes. Y'all pray for me, okay? All right, so here's what we're going to start with. We're going to start with the context for the book of Acts. I'm going to probably need a little bit of help from you here this morning. Let's talk about the who. Somebody raise your hand if you'd like to take a stab at who it was wrote the book of Acts. Hands? Raised hands? Yes. Thomas? Luke! Luke. That's exactly right. So I want you to know that uh, lots of theologians and historians do credit Luke with the book of Acts, but interestingly enough, there are those who actually challenge that notion, as you would suspect. So the book itself doesn't say that it was written by Luke, but it is highly believed uh, and asserted that Luke is the author. Now, who is Luke? Well, uh, in Paul's writings, we see that he is referred to at least three times simply as Luke. But one time in Colossians 4.14, Paul refers to him as the beloved physician. So we know a couple of things about Paul here. One was that he had a strong connection to the Apostle Paul, was probably a disciple of his, and that he was an educated, trained physician, and uh, that he was dearly loved. Uh, you may not realize this, but the um, that was supposed to click automatically, and it didn't. I wanted to show you that cool picture of Luke and Paul. Uh, did you know that the, the Catholics have actually sainted him as St. Luke the Evangelist? Lots of other denominations have done the same thing. In fact, uh, he is the patron saint of artists and physicians, bachelors, few of you in the room, surgeons, get this, students, and butchers. So if you're a butcher, <laughs> Luke is your patron saint. And you can celebrate him with all the others who celebrate him on the 18th of October. Truth is, he was just a guy just like you and me, but he loved Jesus and he was faithful in the work of the Lord. 
He's said to have lived in the city of Antioch, which was a Greek city in the area of ancient Syria. Lots of historians have actually concluded that he was ethnically Greek. But once again, as you suspect, there are lots of people who disagree with that notion. In fact, until yesterday, I was pretty convinced that he was Greek, but because of the study that I did in my preparation for our time together today, I'm kind of leaning toward the notion that he was probably a Jew who had become significantly Hellenized, which means to, to sort of um, become more Greek in his, in his acculturation by living and being educated in Antioch. Now, there are some arguments for both sides of that, and you guys can do some research and decide for yourself whether you think Luke was either a Jew or a Greek. But one of the things that I discovered yesterday about Luke being a Jew is that his inclusiveness of the Gentiles is an amazing thing, and the way in which he uh, uh, expressed uh, the inclusion of the Gentiles in the gospel and in the ministry of, of the church was amazing and uh, is definitely notable if, if you think about it from the vantage point of his being uh, a Jew. One of the reasons that some people believe that Luke was probably a Jew was because there were so many places where Luke would go into the temple with Paul and there was never any reference to any trouble with him being in the presence or in the temple with Paul, whereas there were other Gentiles who uh, it is recorded that they the, the Jewish people complained that Paul was bringing them among them, but there was no record of a complaint that Luke was with them. Tradition tells us that Luke died at approximately the age of 84 in an area called Boeotia, which is in central Greece, and uh, that it was around 84 AD when that happened. And some have said that he was martyred by hanging, but that's just tradition. So if you're reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, you might find out that uh, Luke was hung in an olive tree or something like that. But um, that tradition is something that's handed down from person to person. And we don't always know whether or not that's exactly how it happened. Looking back over the life of, of, the, of Luke, uh, there was a a theologian and an archaeologist who did some significant study throughout the region of Asia Minor. His name was Sir William Mitchell Ramsey. And Ramsey um, uh, was, he set out to prove that Luke was in fact not a reliable source. I'm sorry, the Acts was not a reliable source. And uh, in his study of the book of Acts and of the work of Luke, he concluded that, in fact, that he said that Luke should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. So Ramsey had a profound appreciation for the work of Luke. Now, you may or may not know this, but Luke was not an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. He was not an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. The way we're going to find this out here is we're going to um, take a look at a few passages of Scripture. We're going to begin, this should actually say Luke, forgive me, I don't know why. It was about 1 o'clock in the morning last night when I, when I wrote this, but it should say Luke 1, 1 through 4. 
All right, so let's read this together. I'm going to look over here and read it. Since many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from whom the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in an orderly sequence. Most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. This is the introduction to the book of Luke, and in it he is actually saying that he had great appreciation for all of those who were eyewitnesses and chose to write it down, and thought it would be a really good idea for him as one having encountered the life of Jesus through investigation, through research, through uh, speaking to eyewitnesses to actually write down what he says is an orderly sequence of those events. And the reason he did that was so that we, you and I, and this guy Theophilus, would have an exact, would know the exact truth about the things that we have been taught. This speaks so profoundly to me of the liability of the Gospel of Luke and of the book of Acts. Now, the thing that ties Luke and Acts so beautifully is the way that it ends and the way that the second book begins and this guy called Theophilus. Theophilus brings us to the question, who? All right? And um, I want you to realize that uh, in the book of Acts, there is also a passage of uh, Scripture, verses 1 uh, and 2 of chapter 1, that say, says, The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up into heaven. So uh, the second book is written to Theophilus, and the first book is written to Theophilus. Now, who the heck is Theophilus? All right? In Luke, they call him most excellent Theophilus. Can you think of a situation in which we refer to someone as being most excellent or her excellency? It has, it has to do with something related to rank or standing or ability. And when Luke is writing this, he is recognizing that Theophilus was, in his mind, a person of rank or standing or nobility. Does anybody here know what the word Theophilus actually means? Write this down in your notebook. The word Theophilus actually means friend of God. Most excellent friend of God. Now, there are a lot of people who believe that Theophilus was a, a person. I think he was a Roman uh, noble who had come to trust Christ. There are others who think that he was a person who was the son of a Jewish high priest. And there are lots of theories about who Theophilus may have been. I have a theory of my own, and you don't have to agree. Me. In fact, I would probably encourage you not to just agree with me, but to go and just read it for yourself and let the Holy Spirit lead you in your interpretation. But what if, what if Luke was writing to the friend of God? 
to all of us. Most excellent friend of God. I'm writing to you and to you and to you. And, and this work is for you so that you will know the truth about the things that you have been taught. This work is a beautiful, well-researched history recorded by the Apostle Luke as a gift to the body of Christ so that we may all know the truth. Now, to, to be honest with you, it really doesn't matter if it was a specific person or if it's a reference to all of us who are the friends of God. It really doesn't make that much of a difference, but I wanted you to just consider it because so many people see that most excellent Theophilus or O Theophilus, and they wonder, well, who the heck is Theophilus? And I thought we would take just a moment and take a look at that. All right, we're going to dive in now to the what. Um, we're going to talk about what Acts is about and what it provides for us and what it features. So, what is the book of Acts? It has been, uh, let me see, you get to the what here. It has been actually called the fifth gospel. In Matthew, we see that... Uh, the book ends in Matthew with the resurrection of Jesus. In Mark, the book ends with the ascension of Jesus. In John, it ends with the promise of the second coming. And in Luke, it ends with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 brings all that together into a beautiful fulfillment of all that was promised in the Gospels. If you know who Paul Harvey is, he would have said that Acts is what? The rest of the story. Thank you for those of you who are a little bit older. You would have known who Paul Harvey was. It is, in fact, the rest of the story. Okay? So the Acts of the Apostles is actually a bridge between the Gospels and the Epistles. I love J. Vernon McGee, and he says this. This is the inspired record of the beginning of the church. While Genesis records the origins of the physical universe, Acts records the origin of the spiritual body. I spent a good bit of time in my and probably foolishly, uh, looking into the name of the books. One of the things I wasn't sure about was I thought that all of the books of the Bible, maybe their names were inspired just as the books themselves were inspired by God. Therefore, the name, the Acts of the Apostles, was like breathed by the Holy Spirit, and it was included in the record, and we could trust that that name was... But what I discovered was that the names are not part of the God-breathed scripture. They weren't a part of that. Now, there may have been a few books that actually did have names in them in the original manuscripts, and therefore you could consider them as God-breathed. The book of Luke is not one of them. Um, most editions of the scripture call this book the Acts of the Apostles. But as you read through the book, the only apostles that are really talked about a lot, there are two of them. Anybody want to take a guess at who they are? Paul is one. Peter is the other. Those are the two apostles. But how many apostles do we know that there were? There were many. But specifically, there were the 12, and there are only two that are referred to mostly in this uh, book. 
All the others were left out almost entirely, unnoticed. So that title is hardly fitting. So I have a teacher that I really love, and I encourage you to check him out. He's an old guy. He's already with the Lord, but he has some great messages out there. His name is Ray Stedman. Anybody ever heard of Ray Stedman? He's fantastic. Check him out. He said this. He said, the title should really be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And, and he offered a second suggestion that maybe the book should have been called The Continuing Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Continuing Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I really, really like that. Some things that you're going to see in the book of Acts are they're going to prominently feature the Lord himself, Jesus. It's going to prominently feature the Holy Spirit, our the growth of the church, both visible and visible. There'll be specific references to people. Over 110 persons will be mentioned in this book. It'll highlight the resurrection of Jesus as being central to the gospel and the dominant personality for the first half is, as you said earlier, Peter. And in the second half, the dominant personality is Paul. So that's what we're looking at here as we look at the what of the book of Acts. Let's address really quickly the when. I love timelines. They're really cool to me because they give me a picture of where things fit in. And we see here in this image that 33 AD is when it all happened. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, his ascension into heaven. That's when it all happened. That's the very beginning of the book of Acts. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. The book of Acts covers a 30-year span from 33 A.D. to 63 A.D., and that's when Luke wrote it all down. That's when it ended, and it ends kind of abruptly, and there are a lot of people who suspected that maybe Luke intended to write another, and maybe it was written. We just didn't find it because it ended so abruptly, and there were things that occurred after it. Wouldn't it be awesome? have a record of what happened after, after that? Wouldn't it be incredible to have a, a book written by this great historian about what happened in 64 and 65 AD? We do know that from tradition that the Apostle Paul died at about 65, somewhere between 64 and 67, the Apostle Paul died. Uh, it was right after uh, Rome burned and Nero was blaming a lot of the Christians and Paul died around that time. Peter died around that time. We know that Luke died a bit later over here on the timeline about 84. So that's where it all fits in as far as the time is concerned. I wanted to give you a little bit of uh, uh, reference to that. But one of the things I wondered, does anyone remember from our series on the book of Galatians? It wasn't that long ago, guys. Does anyone remember where on the timeline it fits that Paul actually wrote and recorded uh, wrote the, uh, uh, the letter to the church at Galatia. Anybody have a recollection of that? Just Yeah, I don't blame you. I wouldn't remember that either. But it was right in here. So can you imagine that most of Paul's epistles were written prior to the writing of the book of Acts? In fact, I learned, didn't know this, that many of the gospels were written after many of the epistles were written. 
So that, to me, was incredibly interesting to find out uh, when these things actually happened. Uh, I want to encourage you, if you haven't seen this film, write this down in your notebooks too, uh, Paul the uh, uh, Paul, comma, Apostle of Christ. You can get this on, on Amazon. It's a well-done uh, film uh, about the life of Jesus. That picture with Jim Caviezel in it as, the, uh, as Dr. Luke, it's really, really good and worth looking into because it helps to bring that story into a visual picture for you. So I've just encouraged you to check that out. I'm not saying that everything about it is accurate, but I am saying that it um, it really inspire you and help you to get a picture of what um, it was like for the Christians living in the first century. All right, now we're going to jump on to the next part of the context, and that is the question of where. Where was all of this happening? Where was it that this was going on? All right, it all uh, starts in Jerusalem. Here we have our, our map of first century Mediterranean area. Right here is Jerusalem. So it started there. And then as uh, things began to grow and expand, it moved its way out into, into Judea and Samaria. And beyond that, it ended up up in Syria. Then to Cyprus and Crete. Before you know it, it was over in Galatia and Corinth, and then finally into Rome and into Spain. And what you see is this movement. It is a movement of God from central location outward. God is up to something here. He's building something here. And how is he doing it? How is this happening? That's what we're going to get to in just a moment as we talk about God's master plan. But I just wanted to share with you that it starts in Jerusalem where Acts 1 through 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 7, it's all about what happens in Jerusalem. From Acts 6 to Acts 9, it's all about Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. In Acts 9 through 12, it's about the coastlands in Syria. In 12 through 16, it's about Cyprus and Galatia. In Acts 16 through 19, Macedonia, Asia, and then finally, Acts 19 to 28, it's about Rome and the outreaches there. That is so cool to see how God is taking the gospel and moving it out or across the world such that today you and I sit here because of what happened on the day of Pentecost right here. It has reverberated to the uttermost parts of the earth. So what we're seeing on this map is God's master plan in action. What I want to do now is I want to look back to Luke chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, flip back to the last chapter in the book of Luke. Let me set the stage for you here. In Luke chapter 23, we see the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. So it stands to reason that Luke chapter 24 starts out with the resurrection of Jesus. And then there's that amazing appearance of Jesus on the road to Emmaus that we have recorded in the book of Luke. Several other appearances, and then finally the ascension of Jesus. But what I'd like for us to do for just a moment here is to take a look at Luke 
uh, chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. I love the sound of Bible pages turning. That's awesome. This is Luke talking, and he's recording about an encounter with Jesus at the very end. And this is what Luke says. Now he said to them that he is Jesus. Now Jesus said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you. All the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So during the life of Jesus, as he was coaching and discipling and training these people, he was saying to them, all of these things that are written about Messiah must come true in me. And then he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. Think about that. Prior to this, these folks had been hearing Jesus say things, and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's cool, okay. And then they would just move on. And it wouldn't have an impact on their lives. They needed to have wisdom and revelation from God that opened up their eyes and opened up their minds to see the truth of the Scripture. And here Jesus does that for them and they suddenly understand. I know that every one of you could raise your hands, but how many of you here have sat down to read the scripture and you've read word after word after word after word and it didn't make any sense? And di- thank you, thank you for your honesty. Thank you, Josh. Thank you very much. I appreciate your honesty. At least two of you here are willing to admit that you have sat down to read the scripture and it just, thank you, Dennis. Thank you. And it just didn't make sense. What do we need in those moments when we can't understand the scripture? We need Jesus himself to open up our eyes to see and to understand the scripture so that it makes sense to us. And this is the kind of savior we have. He has a desire for you to understand the truth of the scripture. And so for you to come And to him, Jesus, I am sitting to read your word right now. Jesus, would you open my eyes to see and to understand these words? Because right now they're making no sense to me. Would you give me wisdom and revelation and clarity about what it is that you're saying here? Because that's how Jesus rolls. That's what he does. He gives wisdom. He gives insight. He helps understand the truth. So this is what he goes on to say as he is revealing to them the truth of the scriptures. He said, so it is written, where? In the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms. So it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You, he's talking to his disciples there, are all witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Help me out here. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. What is this, Zach? What is this? What, is it? what are we talking about here? We're talking about the promise that was given to them, that the Holy Spirit would be given to them. But he said... You guys hang out in the city for a while until 
you have been clothed with the Holy Spirit. So hang out in Jerusalem until you have been clothed with power from the Holy Spirit, and then what? What's the reference? What's the idea? The idea is after you've been clothed with the Holy Spirit, get up and go. Leave Jerusalem. Go to Judea. Go to Samaria. Go to the uttermost parts of the earth and take the gospel to those places. So I have a a few things I wanted to share with you uh, specifically about where Jesus is talking here. He says, so it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise from the dead. And on the third day, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name, beginning in Jerusalem. There are lots of places in the Old Testament where you can see these things prophesied. I'm not going to give you all of these references, but if you want a reference for the Christ would suffer. Two great references for that are Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, and Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 12. If you want to know that Jesus was correct when he said that it is written that the Christ should suffer and that he should rise from the dead, look up Psalm 1610, okay? There is a a reference there uh, that Jesus uh, would would not uh, descend to Hades, but would, in fact, um, be saved from corruption. Finally, repentance and forgiveness of sin was prophesied in many particular places, lots and lots of places, but I want to draw your attention to those places that specifically reference the new covenant. Write down um, Isaiah 49.6, write down Jeremiah 31, 34, and Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. In this passage in Ezekiel, where it was prophesied, as Jesus said, the forgiveness of sins and that it should be proclaimed, this is what was said in Ezekiel 36. He said to us, I will sprinkle you with water and cleanse you from all filth. That is a prophecy of the forgiveness of sins that comes through a baptism into relationship with Jesus, an immersion into a relationship with him through uh, uh, the Messiah. And I will give to you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove from you the heart of stone and give to you a heart of flesh. This is a prophecy of salvation, of a time when I will actually enter into a relationship with you where I will remove your heart of stone and I will replace it with a tender new heart of flesh. And he says, I will place spirit within you, and I will write my laws on the inside of your heart so that you will be careful to do all that is written therein. There is going to be, according to Ezekiel and Jeremiah, there's going to be a time when this will happen. It prophesied, and then what? Fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Fulfilled in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Fulfilled in the sharing and the spreading of the gospel to the world, and that all of the nations of the world would be blessed through him. In verse 48 of this same chapter here in Luke, he says, you are my witnesses. You are the ones who have seen it. 
and I am giving you my spirit so that you can take that, leave the city, and go out and share that message with others. Now, this uh, record from who searched it and looked, didn't see it, didn't hear it himself. This is his accounting of it. But in the Gospel of Mark, there is a passage which is quite parallel to it, where Mark in chapter 16, verse 15 said, go, Jesus said, go to all of the world and preach the gospel to every creation. So this is the apostle Mark, his view, his perspective, his memory of what Jesus said at the very end after he uh, has raised from the dead. He tells them to go into all of the world. And what about Matthew? Ron read this to us a couple weeks ago. What about Matthew? He says this, that all authority, this is a Matthew's record of Jesus' words, all authority has on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Who does that include? It was, was this just a reference to all of the Jews that are spread out from here to there? No. It's make disciples of all the nations. Take the gospel outside of the borders of Judaism. Take the gospel to the Gentiles. And as you do that, baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And guess what? I am with you always. This is right around the time when Jesus is ascending up into heaven, and they're seeing him disappear. And there's an incongruity between this promise that I am with you always and this ascension into heaven. It's like, Lord, what's happening here? But what did Acts tell you? Acts said, I'm sorry, Luke said, go. Wait in the city. You will be clothed with power. Then go. Let's jump into the first few verses of Acts chapter 1. We read Luke and the introduction to Luke. Now let's read the entire introduction, just five verses here, uh, to the book of Luke. We're coming to an end here, so don't, don't get discouraged. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up into heaven, after he had given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, he also presented himself, the appearance of Jesus after his resurrection, alive after his suffering, by, convince, by many convincing proofs. Remember this one uh, particular, in Luke chapter 24, where he said, Take and touch my hand, feel it. You can see that I have a body. I am proving to you that it's really me. I am him. So many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the thing, the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. This is a reference back to Luke 24. It connects the two books together. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which Luke clarifies in Acts 1.5 here. He says, you have heard from me that John baptized with water, 
but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the reference to what the Father has promised is specifically referencing this encounter with the Spirit of God on a baptism level. In other words, you are suddenly going to be engulfed in a spirit which was previously foreign to you. It is going to be made available to you in its fullness. It's going to indwell you. It's going to become a part of who you are, and it's going to become the means by which you will follow my commands to take the gospel to the ends of the age. It will be by and through and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I'm jumping into some of Ron's passage for, the, for next week's message, but I'm sure he'll be fine with that. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what will the result be, Jordan? You will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, for starters, and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is God's master plan to take the gospel to the world. It started then, it continues now, and every single one of us who have been baptized into his spirit through faith in Jesus Christ are a part of that master plan. Jesus is continuing to live on the earth today through you and me. God's master plan is incarnation. God's master plan is incarnation. He took on flesh in Bethlehem to break down the barrier between God and man, to bring salvation and the forgiveness of sins. That was incarnation. God becoming a man and being born in a lowly manger. But after he had become the savior of the world, the next thing to do was to take that message and spread it to the world. And the best way to accomplish that was by going up into heaven himself and sending the power of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ so that you and you and you and you can become a representative of Jesus Christ, a witness, an ambassador of his grace to the rest of the world. And God took on flesh at Pentecost to continue the life and the ministry of Jesus through his church. That's why I love what Ray Stedman said about the, a great title for the book of Acts being the Acts or the continuing Acts of Jesus in the establishment of his church. I'm not saying that right, but you know what I'm saying. So here we see God's incredible master plan. I have to tell you guys, <laughs> I spent so many years of my life just thinking of the church as an organization, as, as like a, a, a company or an institution. And, and I thought of it as being something that you joined you, you became a member of, and, and then um, you somehow or another got busy doing whatever it was that the church was supposed to be doing, and I never understood the mystery of Christ living in me. I, I never got that until Jesus opened my eyes and gave me wisdom and revelation. And I'm standing here today... And I'm absolutely emotional over the significance 
of this reality. Folks, you are not just a member of a club. You are a part of a living organism, and Jesus is the head, and you are members of that body. And he has placed you here today to unify you together in Christ Jesus, to take the message to the rest of the world. But the only way that we'll ever become missional, the only way we'll show Lynchburg that we care, the only way that we'll be able to make the gospel clear to people around the world is if we're walking in and through the power of God's Holy Spirit. If we're walking in the power of John Stroud or Jordan Ginn, we are going to fail miserably. We're going to blow it. But if we walk in his power, if we trust that this is his reality, that he has placed his spirit within you to bring the gospel to the world, that's how it's going to be accomplished. That's the only way it will be accomplished. And I pray that God will open your eyes to help you see that Jesus desires to live his life through you. He made it possible for you to be crucified, to put you to death. So that you would be raised as a brand new creation, Josh, in Christ Jesus. So that you would be able to allow his life to be lived through you. Do you want that? Do you want that? This is what Jesus has done for you. He gave his life for you as your savior. So that he could give his life to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Didn't mean to press that button. It just happened. So he could live his life through you. And there's just one question. Do you believe it? And will you actively, intentionally trust this truth? Moment by moment by moment, allowing Jesus to live his life through you. Will you? Do you see it? Have your eyes? been open today to understand that Jesus didn't die and go to heaven and, and just leave us here, that he is here right now in each one of us, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that he's placed that spirit within us to do the work of evangelism and discipleship here on the earth. The only way it's going to happen is if we trust this and we live in this reality moment by moment, and then when we forget we come together and we remind each other of the truth. I need people like that. And I've got them. I, I can, a dozen of you in this room right now can come to me and to remind me when I have forgotten the truth. And bring me back to this point. Not I, but Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this body, I live by faith. Trust in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful to you for this beautiful mystery, for Christ in us, the hope of glory. And Father, we as a church here at, in Lynchburg called Mosaic, we desire to make an impact in this city, to make an impact in our world. We desire to see your gospel made known and clear throughout the world, and we recognize here in the reading of this scripture that your master plan is to do that as we live our lives in dependence upon the truth of Jesus living his life in us. We ask you, God, that you would, as you did for, for Hudson Taylor and Norman Grubb and 
and Billy Graham as you did for Jerry Falwell. God, would you open the eyes of our hearts to see and understand this mystery in a deeply personal way so that wisdom and revelation would drive us in our action day by day. Father, when we, when we doubt it, when we disbelieve it, when we forget it, we invite you to remind us of the truth, to bring us back to center, to what is real, to who you are, to who we are, to what we are and what we're about. We just thank you so much for the word of God. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen.